This morning, I'm continuing in my sermon series through the book of Acts. So far, Jesus has risen from the dead. He spent 40 days on and off with his disciples, and then he ascended to heaven. And then as the disciples gathered on the day of Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit to be the presence of God inside of them. So a few things have happened so far in Acts. And what's going to happen today as we go through Acts 2, 14 to 41, is that the crowd that has gathered has seen the uh, disciples beginning to speak in other languages, to declare the wonders of God to all who are gathered. And they're asking, what does this mean? What does this mean? What is going on here? Today answers that question as Peter gets up to declare what is going on. And so I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41 to begin. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently tell you that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. 
Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let me pray before we continue. Thank you for your word. Lord, open our ears and open our hearts to hear and to understand what this means. Apply this, Lord, to our lives. By your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Pretty successful sermon. 3,000 become followers, and probably that was just counting the men, because that's the way they did it in those days. First Christian sermon, 3,000, added to their number that day. And I want to highlight four things from this passage for us this morning. The first is this, the courageous coward. I don't want you to miss who gets up and speaks there, right? This is Peter. Remember Peter's story here? I mean, Peter was the boldest of the boldest when it came to the disciples, right? Always first to kind of jump in and follow Jesus anywhere. And he had declared to Jesus, I will follow you whatever happens, right? Even if you die, I'm going to die right alongside you. And Jesus tells him what? Peter, I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will deny knowing me three times. Peter, the boldest disciple, I'm going to follow you to death, Jesus. As Jesus is being taken away to be crucified, three times he's asked by people, hey, aren't you with that Jesus guy? And he says, I don't even know him. I don't know what you're talking about. He's afraid for his life. He sees what's happening to Jesus. And out of his fear, the courage, the boldness melts away and he becomes a coward. And after Jesus dies, he goes back fishing. What he used to do before he was called by Jesus. He's devastated, letting Jesus down. But then Jesus rises from the dead. He reveals himself to his disciples. He calls Peter to him. He cooks him breakfast on the beach. And he reinstates him. He asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon was his name before Jesus nicknamed him Peter the Rock. Son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Feed my sheep, pastor my people. He reinstates Peter three times. He denied him three times. He tells him, pastor my people, I'm reinstating you. Go, lead and pastor my people. This is not just the story of someone who was a coward, you know, becoming courageous and bold. This is the story of what the Holy Spirit can do in the lives of a man or a woman, amen? This is, the, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Because Peter was bold, but there was a bravado there that underneath there was this fear and this cowardice. But after he was humbled and God gave him his Holy Spirit, he became courageous. This same crowd that had just put Jesus to death, now Peter gets up in front of them, risking his own life, to declare to them what is going on, what it means that they're speaking in these other languages. Makes me think of 2 Timothy 1.7 where Paul says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. That's the Holy Spirit that he gives us. It's not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of timidity, not a spirit of cowardice. His Holy Spirit is a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. So just look, before we get into the context or the content of this sermon, look at who's giving the talk. Peter, getting up to share at risk of his own life, even though he had just denied and betrayed his Lord not too long before. The courageous coward, transformed by the Holy Spirit. Take heart. Those of you who feel like cowards, take heart, those of you who feel the fear, who feel like frauds, who look at yourselves and just, you just aren't sure about yourself. Take heart. This is what the Holy Spirit does in a man. It's what the Holy Spirit does in a woman. 
takes those of us who are, are afraid, who are cowards, who don't know what we're doing, and gives us this kind of spirit, a spirit not of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. See, the Bible is not about the heroes of the faith. You know, sometimes, especially in Sunday school growing up, we can be guilty of talking about the Bible as if it's about these great heroes of the faith, Abraham and Moses and David and all of that. But when you read the actual stories as adults, what do you find? You find very flawed men and women. Right? Flawed men and women used by God, empowered by his Holy Spirit to do things that they could not do in their own strength. We're no different. Think about how James says, you know, Elijah was a man just like us. He's not some hero of the faith. He was a man just like us. He prayed, and God, look at what God did through him. David was a man just like us. Look what God did through him. Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Esther, men and women just like us. Look at what God did through them. This is not about the heroes of the faith. It's about the courageous cowards, those who are cowards, those who are afraid, those who don't have it all together. Empowered and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Listen to Romans 8. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in a person. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? I mean, that's Peter getting up there. If God's for me, who can be against me? What can man do to me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Again, this is Peter getting up boldly before the crowd. What can they do to me? What can they do to me? God is on my side. God is for me. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where true courage comes from. It doesn't come from just being some bravado, you know, some bold person in your own flesh, trying to overcome the fears within. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline, of knowing that if God is for me, who can be against me? That nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. That even if the whole crowd is against me, he is for me. That Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's my advocate. He declares that I am not guilty, that I am worthy, that I am right in his sight. Amen? That is the truth. That is what brings courage and boldness. To go out and face whatever the crowd, whatever anyone might say, whatever condemnation, judgment might come my way. I know what his verdict is, the only one that matters. Or as David writes in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Again, I don't want you to miss the person giving this sermon. This is Peter. Remember at the Last Supper, how he had said, you know what, I'm going to follow you to the death, Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. 
says, right now there's a battle going on over you because you're about to go through the hardest thing you've ever gone through. You are about to deny knowing me. You're going to be crushed in your spirit. You're going to want to give up. You're going to want to die. Satan wants to take you out, convince you that you're a failure, that you can't get back up, that you don't deserve to follow me. But I'm praying for you that your strength would not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Pastor my people. Go and be a leader. Go and proclaim the gospel. Do not be afraid. I have forgiven you. And if that's my judgment, that's my verdict, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Take heart. All of you sitting out here who think, you know what, I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm not to that level. I'm not one of those heroes. I'm just some ordinary guy, some ordinary woman. Do you know what the Holy Spirit can do inside of you? Do you know how the Holy Spirit can transform a man, can transform a woman from a coward into a courageous person? That's the first thing we see here is the courageous coward. The second is the cosmic context. Look at me. Look at me going with my C's. The cosmic context. So the crowd hears the people speaking another language and they're asking, what does this mean? And Peter gets up, and instead of just going straight to the resurrection, he begins by grounding it in the larger story, the cosmic context. He goes back to the prophet Joel and says, what's going on here is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He goes back to David and the things that David said in the Psalms and says, look at how what they prophesied in the Old Testament is being fulfilled here today in your, in your presence. This is what he says from Joel 2. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Look at what he's saying there. He's saying, it doesn't matter. Man, woman, old, young, rich, poor. I am going to give my Holy Spirit to all who know me. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, everyone. Everyone. No barriers. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Male, female, Jew, Greek, rich, poor, slave, free. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is doing a new thing here, he says. This is what was prophesied. The Holy Spirit, remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not indwelling individuals. The Holy Spirit would come down and rest on specific individuals and empower them. But now, he says, now that Jesus has died, risen again, and ascended to heaven, he has poured out his Holy Spirit to be God living inside of every believer. God is doing a new thing. That God will dwell in you by his Holy Spirit. And everyone calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? This is what Jesus said in John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus says, I have not come to condemn, I have come to save. That right now we are all, because of our sins, separated from a holy God. Even Jesus is saying that here, that we are under God's condemnation because of our sin, separated from him. 
But Jesus came to bridge that gap and to make a way for us to come back to a relationship with God, the Father. Amen? That's why Jesus came, to save us from eternal separation from God. And he says, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. All who call on the name of the Lord, Peter says, will be saved. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. It culminates here in Jesus. All the prophecies, all the promises lead to this. Think of what Jesus said to his disciples after he'd risen from the dead and he's walking on the road to Emmaus. He says to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's incredible. It's like one of those movies, you know, at the end of the movie, there's that twist and all of a sudden everything that came before it is just revealed in a new light. And you see all the things that you missed and realize that everything was pointing up to this ending and you'd missed it all along. And here's Jesus saying, that's what the Old Testament is. You missed it. It wasn't just a bunch of stories about random people in random places. It's one grand story pointing to me, to my life, death, and resurrection. Can you imagine what it must have been like on that road to Emmaus as Jesus opens up the scriptures and shows them back in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers how everything was pointing to him. All the stories point to Jesus and find fulfillment in him. That's the cosmic context. These are not just random stories. Everything points to him. The central character. Everything points to Jesus. Peter goes on to proclaim to them, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one who has come to save the world from sin and death. And he says, but you killed him. That's bold, right? I mean, this is, again, this is, this is the coward Peter who was afraid to even say that he belonged to Jesus. And now he is getting up to this crowd that has gathered, and he is basically saying, guess what? You killed him. You killed Jesus. He was the Messiah sent by God to save us, and you're responsible for killing him. He knows this crowd could have turned on him and killed him, but he is courageous. And he says, Jesus, the Messiah. He says, verse 22, beginning there, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Listen, he says, not only is Jesus the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies and promises, but look at what happened to him. He lived, he died, he rose again. And there he says, we are all witnesses of this fact, that this is the proof that he is the Holy One of God. He is the Messiah. He is God in human flesh. And your eternal destiny depends upon how you respond to him. Bold claims, I know. But again, he's saying, we're all witnesses of this. 
he died, he rose again. And we would do well to take that seriously because not many people that I know have died and risen again. And so if this one who claimed to be God in the flesh has died and risen again, maybe we should pay attention to what he said. And I think about this as a preacher, as people who share the gospel. You know, often we're taught we should appeal to people's felt needs maybe, you know, their need for significance or love or security. And there's a place for that. But many people can just say, well, that works for you, and that's great, but that doesn't work for me. You know, There's other things that work for me, that bring me security, that bring me love, that bring me purpose and all of that. But here, Peter just goes straight to the truth of Jesus, crucified, risen again from the dead. There's no relevant, you know, there's no, it's not about whether this is, you know, relative or not. This is the truth for all that you need to respond to. Did he rise from the dead or not? Is he who he claimed to be or not? If he is who he claimed to be and has risen from the dead, it doesn't matter what you think or how you feel. He's the truth, the way, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So you would do well to focus on the resurrection when you're sharing the gospel, and you would do well to consider that if you don't know if you believe. You know, not asking, there's plenty of other questions you can ask, but start there. Is this Jesus who he claimed to be? Did he die and rise from the dead? I know we just looked at this a few weeks ago at Easter, of course, but just look at some of the proofs you see right here in Acts. You find an absolutely transformed people who were running away, cowards, hiding all of a sudden now boldly proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead without fear for their lives. And in fact, all of them are going to wind up being killed for what they believe. But none of them, none of them is going to deny it. Say, you know, we made the whole thing up. No, because they didn't make it up. And they knew it was true and they were willing to die for it. How do you explain that, right? If you don't believe, how do you explain the transformed lives of these disciples? Because there were plenty of other would-be messiahs in those days who died and their names are forgotten with history. Because they died, they didn't rise again. But here is the one who died and rose again and his followers were absolutely transformed. You find the eyewitnesses. Again, some people just believe, well, you know what, you know, Jesus probably died and then over the centuries, you know, the story became from this Jesus who died, but we, we believe in him To We believe he rose from the dead, you know? And eventually over a few hundred years, the story kind of came around that Jesus rose from the dead. But this is the story of like, what, 40, 50 days after Jesus died? People proclaiming that he rose from the dead. This is not something that had hundreds of years to kind of develop into a story. This is within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. This is Peter saying, you're all eyewitnesses to this fact. That Jesus, who we killed, has risen from the dead. Again, if he was making it up, all they had to say was, all they had to do was say, "Where's the body?" Right? Let's go find Jesus' body, and we'll put an end to this thing. But there was no body because he had risen from the dead. And three thousand are added to their number that day. The Jews, the Greeks, come to believe in the resurrection. And as I've said before, the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews, of course, they did not believe in the resurrection until the end of time. At the end of time, there'll be a general resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe an individual could rise from the dead in the middle of history. And the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't believe it was 
that you wanted to rise from the dead. They believed that the body was this prison, this, this fallen prison that you needed to, the soul needed to escape from the body. And for a man to rise bodily from the dead, they would have been like, why is that a good thing? Why would anyone want to rise again and have a body again? But they came to believe because it was true, because Jesus had risen from the dead. Again, I encourage you, if you do not believe, study the resurrection for yourself. There are not many people in the history of the world who claim to die and rise again, especially those who claim to be God in the flesh. Learn the proofs of the resurrection that when you're sharing your faith, that you'll be able to point people to this. This is where, this is the central aspect of our faith. And if it's true, then it demands a response because your eternal destiny depends upon whether or not you believe in Jesus. So let me leave you with the last, the convicting call. Peter's speech ends this way. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's great, isn't it? The crowd asked, what does this mean? Peter explains it. Jesus has died, risen again. God has poured out his Holy Spirit, and, then they say, and, and you put him to death. And now they say, what shall we do? And Peter responds with this. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's important to hear this because there's all kinds of calls out there, you know. Ask Jesus into your heart. Receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Come forward and pray the prayer of salvation, accept Christ, believe in Jesus, believe on Jesus, all kinds of things that you've probably heard over the years. The most common call in the New Testament is to repent and believe or sometimes repent and be baptized. Let me just throw a few up there. Mark 1, 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Luke 24, 46 to 47, Jesus told them, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Acts 17.30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What does the word repent mean? Essentially, it means to turn around to change one's mind, to realize it was my sin that held him there. I was the one who killed him. I was the one. It was my sin that caused Jesus to die. It's to turn from self-centeredness and sin, to turn to faith in Jesus, to trust that he died for your sins. So there is this turning that has to happen for salvation. And then believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Baptism, in case you're unfamiliar with what baptism is, It's from the Greek word for immerse, to dip, to plunge, to put something completely under the water and then bring it back up. And it symbolized entry into the church. So to be baptized was to become a member of the church. Remember Jesus, Matthew 28, he said, there we go, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Depending on what church background you've come from, baptism might mean different things to you. Our understanding of baptism in the Bible is that it's, it's an outward declaration of what God has done internally. 
so that as God has brought me from spiritual death to life through his Holy Spirit, when I go down into the water and come up out of the water, I'm symbolizing what God has done internally. I've died to my sin. I've risen again to new life in Christ. Our understanding is that something that an individual should do when they can themselves make that declaration, make that proclamation. That's why we don't baptize babies here because babies can't make that decision for themselves. It's something we believe that as you are old enough to make that declaration that I trust in Jesus, I've died to my sins, I've repented of my sins, I put my faith in Jesus, that you make that decision and we will baptize you. We did baptism last summer for a few of you. And those of you who have not been baptized yet, I would encourage you uh, to talk to me if you want to learn more about that. You know there's different views. There's some who believe that babies are baptized because they believe that the act of baptism itself washes away original sin, causes regeneration. Some do uh, baptism of babies because they believe it's entering into the covenant community as a baby. Um, That's not how we read the Bible. So again, I would encourage you if you've never been baptized, it's an outward declaration of what God has done internally. If you know that you have turned from your sin to faith in Jesus, then be baptized. Repent and believe. That is the call. And sometimes we want to skip over the repent part because that's the confrontational part, right? That you need to turn from sin. You need to put away things that are not of him. You need to turn from self-centeredness to put your faith in Jesus. But that's the call. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Repent and come to faith in Jesus. Let me leave you with this prayer. Again, if this is new to you, if you have never Come to faith in Jesus if you don't know God in that way, if you don't think you have his Holy Spirit inside of you, you don't know if you have forgiveness of sins, if you don't know if you have eternal life. Here's a prayer that you can pray. Let me pray this and lead this out and pray this with me if this is new to you, if you want to give your life to Christ and repent and believe this morning. Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. I believe that apart from faith in you, I will die in my sins, separated from God for all eternity. But I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross in my place, taking the penalty for my sin, and that you rose from the grave, conquering death. I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time this morning, please, after the service, let me know or let someone you came with know. There's nothing more important than this. This is the central moment of history. Jesus, his death, resurrection, and he poured out his spirit that God could live inside each of you. And your eternal destiny depends upon that. I know those are bold words to speak, but Jesus himself said that that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I want you all to have eternal life. Amen.